You can turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. In light of the new year, I'd like us to spend some time in this chapter, Revelation chapter 5. And I hope to tell you at the end of our meditation on this chapter, uh, why I was stirred to make this the new year's sermon. Let's pray and then we'll read God's word. Father, thank you so much for your word. You have blessed us, Lord, with this sweet privilege, Lord, to get to read it, get to read your word. Please, God, give us ears to hear. Humble our hearts and give us eyes to see the glory of Christ. Lord Jesus, you're everything to us. We want to know you and we want to worship you. Please help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and I, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. A quick summary of what's found in this chapter. We've got the backdrop, the question, the answer, and the worship. So again, quick summary, the backdrop is in verse 1. You've got God seated on his throne with a scroll, a sealed scroll in his hand. You've got the question in verses 2 through 4. Who's worthy to open this scroll, to read the contents that are there? And of course, no one's found worthy. Except the answer comes in verses 5 through 6. Jesus is the one worthy to open the scroll. And then verses 7 through 14, we see the worship that explodes out of this revelation of Jesus the Christ. So let's walk through that. The backdrop, the question, the answer, and the worship. So the backdrop here, just to understand you know, the scene, um, verse 1, God seated on his thro- throne, a scroll in his hand. To understand that better, let's think about the context for just a minute. And let's start with the context of the, the entire uh, book of Revelation. What is this book? What is the book of the Revelation? Revelation 1.1, very first verse says, The revelation of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say a revelation of eschatology or a revelation of the Antichrist. Those things are mentioned and that's great. But at the heart of it, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It might do a lot of us good to reread the book of Revelation with that in mind. This is the revelation of Jesus the Christ. It's about him. Leonard Ravenhill summarized the book of Revelation as a book of mystery, a book of misery, and a book of majesty. A book of majesty because it's all about the exalted, majestic Christ. Not Jesus, meek and mild, lowly Jesus, meek and mild, but exalted Jesus. Magnificent, majestic. It's about misery because it's a deeper look into the end of those that don't have Jesus. Misery, miserable, torment, day and night, forever and ever. And it's mystery because there's many mysteries found here in the book of Revelation. Many things that are hard to understand, veiled in apocalyptic or, or, or symbolic language, even in our chapter. Don't get lost in it. Now, lost people, if, if lost people read the book of Revelation, they tend to get caught up into, into the misery of it all, but never make it to the majesty of Christ. They miss that. And many times Christians, oftentimes Christians get caught up in the mystery of it all, And what does this mean and this symbolic thing? And they miss the majesty of Christ. Grace Community Church, I don't want us to miss the majesty of Jesus in the book of Revelation. And specifically in chapter 5. The majesty of Christ. Now Revelation chapters 4 and 5 are connected. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 are a very foundational and important part of this book and they're connected Uh, chapter four if you go back and read it's kind of like you get a vision into the throne room of God the throne room of heaven and then revelation five zooms in to the centerpiece of that throne room which is Christ Jesus our savior so revelation Uh, 4 verse 1, you literally have, listen to this. After this I looked and behold, behold, look, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So so Revelation 4, 1 begins with this door opened into heaven. 
to see what must take place after this. And he gets called up. Come and look. Come and see. Come and get a glimpse into heaven. Walk through that door. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. And that chapter goes on to give us a lot of things about the, the, the very first sight. If you keep reading there in Revelation 4, the very first thing he sees is, Behold, I saw a throne. And him who's sitting on that throne. And it begins to describe him in this language. And it begins to describe the surroundings around the throne and the thunder and the lightning coming out from the throne. This majestic moment where he's, he's entered into the throne room of heaven, the throne room of God. And he's seeing and he's seeing these people called the elders over here and, and these living creatures over here and these angelic beings. And he's seeing the worship, holy, holy, holy. He's getting a view of this. In Revelation chapter 4, Revelation 4 ends with worship. They're all bowing down before the one that's seated on the throne. And then Revelation 5.1, there's that one seated on the throne with a scroll in his hand. This is our setting, this is our backdrop. He's got a scroll in his hand. What is this scroll? What does the scroll, sealed with seven seals, written on front and back, what does it symbolize? Well, we know it's something very, very important, right? Because no one's found worthy, it says, to open this scroll. Is anyone worthy to open the scroll? No one. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, no one's found worthy to open this scroll. Something important's there. It's in God's hand and nobody is worthy or able to break its seals. Something massively important. Now some say that the scroll represents God's ultimate purpose for all of history. The final reckoning of judgment that's coming. The future consummation of all things. The scroll contains this. Now they get this from the following chapters. If you read Revelation chapter 6, for example, and you actually see the seals. The first seal is cracked. Second seal open. Third seal. Fourth seal. Fifth seal. And you, and you see that in Revelation 6, and you keep reading through Revelation, and it seems like that's what's being revealed. This ultimate purpose of all things, the judgment is coming. The reckoning of the judgment is coming. The consummation of all things. And that's what seems to be contained in this scroll. So think about that question. Who's worthy to mediate these things? Who's worthy to go to God and take that scroll out of His hand and execute God's ultimate purposes for humanity? Man, who's worthy? Now some people, this isn't totally different. but It's a little different angle. Some people exp explain the scroll as the title deed to all creation. The title deed. In other words, who owns it? Well, God owns it. The title deed is in His hand. The scroll is in His hand. And who's worthy to come and receive ownership of this earth? Ownership of this creation? Now that idea starts back in Genesis Chapter 1, the title deed is offered to Adam. Adam, be fruitful. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Take dominion. Take ownership of it, Adam. And yet he forfeits the title by his rebellion. And immediately he forfeits his, his, his uh, title with, with, with this rebellion and immediately we begin to hear word about one that's going to come, a second Adam the last Adam Psalm 2 speaks about that one coming like this I have set my king on my holy hill now Psalm 2 starts with the rebellious planet, the rebellious people on earth. Just like Adam rebelled, so all of Adam's children have rebelled against God. But he says this, but I will set, I have set my king on my holy hill. And then a promise is offered to that king 
Listen to the promise. You are my son. The one on the throne, the father says about the son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is the all nations title deed given to God's promised king, his promised Messiah. Now this connects really well with Revelation chapter 5, which Revelation 5, we just read it, it tells us that the only one that's worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals is the one who has redeemed for himself and all nations people to reign on earth. You see it there in verse 9. He's ransomed for himself and all nations people to reign on earth. This also aligns with Matthew 28, verse 18 and 19, where Jesus, after risen from the dead, says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's God the Son saying that. As one that has become human, as one that has died for sinners and risen from the dead, from that position of fully man, fully God, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. This aligns with Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. You remember that verse where it says, One like a son of man went before the ancient of days. And what did he do? What did he receive when he went before the ancient of days? Well, in Revelation chapter 5, we've got him going to receive a scroll. What do we have in Daniel chapter 7? He's going to receive dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all nations, peoples, and languages should bow down and serve this one, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. He who has the title deed owns it all. God's on his throne, Revelation 5, and he holds it in his hand. Who's worthy? Who's worthy to go and take this scroll from his hand? Adam wasn't found worthy. And it says here, no one, no thing in all creation is found worthy. Joel Beakey, when he taught on Revelation 5, really sort of brought these two thoughts together about what the, what the scroll is, what the backdrop is here. Joel Beakey says it like this. God promised to Adam that he would reign over the earth. Although Adam forfeited this promise, Christ, the last Adam, was to inherit it. A human person had to open the book, the scroll, because the promises were made to humanity. But no person, no human was found worthy to open it. Because all sinners stand under the judgment contained in the book. Nevertheless, Christ was found worthy because he suffered the final judgment as an innocent, sacrificial victim on behalf of his people whom he represented and consequently redeemed. So Revelation chapter 4, Revelation 5 Chapter 5, verse 1 gives us the backdrop. It gives us the scene. The scene has been set. And then right there in the middle of that scene, we get the question. And the question's found in verse 2. I've already alluded to it many times. And I saw a mighty angel. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This is about worth and no one's found worthy, it goes on to say. Verse 3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. This is about ability. No one was able. No one was found worthy. Why is no one found worthy? Because of sin? Absolutely. Certainly because of sin. 
I'll read what Beaky said again. No person was found worthy to open it because all sinners stand under the judgment that's contained in the scroll. But I'd say not only because of sin, because of glory. Who's worthy? Set sin aside for just a minute. Who is worthy to approach the Ancient of Days and to receive something, take something from His hand? What about sinless angels? Isaiah chapter 6, we've got angels, seraphim, that are, that are, that are they're not marked by sin like we are, and yet they're not worthy. They're covering themselves. They're backing away, covering themselves. Holy, holy, holy. Who's worthy to approach the Ancient of Days? And so verse 4, what does this make John do? John, who's getting the vision, verse 4 says, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. He's weeping there. The question goes out loud, Who's worthy? Who's worthy to open the scroll? And it's silence. No one. And the silence is broken by chest heaving, weeping, tears. Because no one's found worthy. Why would this cause us to weep? Why would this cause us to weep? There's no mediator. You mean there's no mediator? There's no, which means there's no savior, which means there's no king. There's no one that can go and stand between us sinful humanity and God and save us and rescue us and lead us to the end. There's no one. This causes weeping. Made me think of Ezekiel 22.30. I sought, God says, I sought for a man among them who could stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. So there's John weeping. But then light breaks in. And you get the answer to the question, who's worthy? Who's worthy? And verse 5 and 6 brings the answer. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and his seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven seals and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Who's worthy? And somebody speaks up. And they say, look. They say, behold. They say, look. The lion. The root of David. The lamb. They say, look. I want to encourage you to take these commands. There's two commands here. In verse 5, to take them very, very seriously. Let these commands go down into your heart. The first command is weep no more. Imagine John hearing that. He's sitting there. No one's found worthy. It's silence in heaven. Nobody can open the scroll. There is no mediator. There is no savior. There is no king. He's weeping. Imagine hearing that command. Weep no more. No more tears. I'm about, to, I'm, about, I'm about to show you something that will end your sorrow. Next command. Behold. Behold. Look. That's the command. Behold. Look. Look at what? Look at the lion. Look at the root of David. Look at the lamb. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to even read your Bible very long to know that that's talking about Jesus. Look at Jesus, the Savior. Beautiful, beautiful commands to take serious even today. Behold Jesus and weep no more. Gaze upon Christ and let sorrow die. And that's exactly what I want us to do. 
I want us to see what does this chapter reveal to us about Jesus? What does it reveal to us about Christ? I want us to behold him, to take these commands serious, and behold Christ together in this worship gathering. But before we do it, I want to highlight something that's very, very important. Before we just answer the question, what's revealed here about Jesus? I want to highlight something that's very, very important. Revelation 4, as I said a moment ago, is like the bird's eye view of the throne room of heaven. It's the panoramic view. But Revelation 5 is that zooming in, and what do we really see is at the center of it all. When he, when he gets that when he steps through that open door into heaven and sees the most important thing he's ever seen, and then it zooms in to the most central piece of that, what does he see there? And he sees Christ. His attention is drawn to Christ. Just consider this with me for a minute. Think about the act of creation when God created all things. The very beginning. In the beginning, God created Think about the act of creation. Genesis 1 gives us the panoramic view. It gives us the bird's eye view. God spoke and this was made and he spoke and this was made and he spoke and this was made. But when we zoom in, if we were able to zoom in to that act of creation and see what's at the center of it, what would we see? Well, John 1.1 tells us that, doesn't it? Doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. He's the creator of all things. We see Christ at the center of that panoramic view of all creation. Or take a book. You take the book of Genesis, for example. And just... Just get a bird's eye view, panoramic view of, of the book of Genesis. And what do you have there? You've got creation and Noah's flood and you've got the tower, uh, tower of Babel and you've got Abraham and Abraham has Isaac and Isaac has Jacob and Jacob has 12 sons and they eventually end up in Egypt. And that's the story of the book of Genesis. And that's the panoramic view. But when you zoom in, what do you see? Promise after promise after promise that zero in on Christ Jesus, the root of David. He's the center of the book of Genesis. Or what about the, the, the event of the Exodus? The Exodus. Think about that bird's eye view. Of what happened there, that the people of God, Abraham's family, has multiplied and they're enslaved in Egypt. And God comes in through Moses and delivers them through power, through signs and wonders, through plagues. He delivers them out of Egypt. That's the panoramic view. But when you zoom in, what do you see? What's at the center of it? I wonder if you know Jude 5 says, Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Did you have Jesus in the center of the Exodus? Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. And what happens when you zoom in just on the, the centerpiece of all human history? When you get to the very center of all human history, what do you find there? What do you find there? You find Christ at the center of it all. Even our time, before Christ and in the year of our Lord, B.C., A.D., Christ is at the center of it all. Okay, so that's good. But what's the most important, if you could just, if you had a choice to, to gaze into any scene, any event, any moment in history, anything you want, you could see it. What would be the most important scene you could look into? What would be the most significant, panoramic, bird's eye view that you could have a chance to see? What place? What moment? Well, how about Revelation 4.1? 
He says to John, there's a door open in heaven. You can come see there. The most important scene, the most important place to get a glimpse into heaven, to walk through that door and to see what God wants you to see as the throne room of heaven. You get to see that. The most significant scene. And if we follow John's eyes, what happens? He walks through that door and the first thing it says, verse, chapter 4, verse 2, Behold, a throne and Him who's sitting on that throne. And it describes that panoramic view, that, that bird's eye view. And then chapter 5, then I saw the scroll in the hand. And chapter 5, verse 5 says, Behold, weep no more. Behold, follow John's eyes. What does he see at the very center of the most significant scene he could ever put his eyes on? We see Christ right there at the center of it. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Root of David. The Lamb. He's at the very center of the most important reality you could ever set your eyes on. Therefore, brothers and sisters, please know this. Jesus truly is the center of it all. He really is. He's the center of all history. He's the center of your entire Bible. Jesus is the center of all eternity. He is the reason for it all. Jesus is the purpose for it all. How should that affect us? He must be the center of our lives. Jesus must be the center of this, of this church, the center of our families. He must be the center of everything, our highest affections for Him, our deepest thinking about Him, all of our energy in service to Him, all things in this creation and outside this creation zoom into Him. They center on Him. The greatest tragedy would be to take the panoramic view of your life and to zoom in on it and Christ be nowhere to be found. He's just on the edges. What a tragedy. So in light of that, let's do this command. Let's behold Jesus and weep no more. How is Jesus described here? Verse 5 says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's how he's described. That's coming from Genesis chapter 49. I'm going to read verse 8 through 12. Where he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah because the Messiah was promised to come through Judah. So this is what's said to Judah in Genesis 49 verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. That's not about Judah. That's about the one that's coming from Judah. He's worthy of praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. He's a conqueror. Jesus is a conqueror. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Jesus is a king. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? He's the mighty lion of the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. He's king, he's ruler forever. It'll never depart until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He's the all-nation, all-peoples king. That's who Jesus is. And then you get this this poetic imagery binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is the king that will usher in extravagant abundance. That's Jesus. Wine gets used like water. You'll wash your garments not in water but in wine. Just this poetic language of the extravagant abundance that this Christ, this king is going to usher in. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5 also says, behold, he's the root of David. Behold, 
He's the root of David. And that's coming from Isaiah chapter 11. I'll read this to you. Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's Jesse. That's David's father. A shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Speaking of this Messiah. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes with his, by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He's coming as king and as judge and a Holy Spirit filled judge full of righteousness and truth. Righteousness, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Listen to what he's going to usher in. Listen to the, again, the, the almost poetic language. He's going to usher this in. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everything will be affected. Like a child leading a lion by its beard. He's going to usher this in. And listen to what it says. In that day, the root of Jesse, the root of David, not just the shoot that comes out from him, but he's, he's David's son. Jesus is David's son, but he's also David's Lord. He's the reason for David, and he's the one that came from David. He's the root of David. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people's, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Behold, he's called the lamb in Revelation 5. In verse 6, it calls him the lamb. Think about it. The voice that goes out says, Weep no more, John. Behold, the lion the root of David. And John turns to see, and what does he see? Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. I saw a lamb. Jesus is the lamb. And he's the lamb that was slaughtered. Verse 6 tells us that a lamb standing as though it had been slain Verse 9 repeats it, for you were slain. Verse 12 repeats it, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He was slaughtered. Why was he slaughtered? Why was the lion, the root of David, why did he become the lamb that was slaughtered? Verse 9 says, because by his blood he ransomed a people for himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue. We deserve death. We deserve hell forever. We deserve the wrath of God. We, we deserve the slaughtering, eternal slaughtering. And Jesus comes and, and makes Himself the Lamb slaughtered for our sins to take our place, to take our punishment. He's the Lamb that's slain. Now what do slaughtered lambs do? They don't do anything. They just lay there and rot. That's what slaughtered lambs do. But it's interesting. Notice verse 6 says, standing. You see it? He saw, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He is the lamb that was slaughtered, but he is now standing. He's our risen Savior, slaughtered under the wrath of God, but risen to reign as King forever. This is Jesus. Now it says this lamb, verse 6, 
has seven horns. Symbolic language here. and Seven eyes. And it seems like this is symbolic of his omnipotence and his omniscience. He's all-powerful and he's all-knowing. Think about it. Seven horns. You've probably heard the phrase throughout the Old Testament, the horn of my salvation or the horn of my strength. This is representative of his strength, of his power. And it says it's seven horns. He's all-powerful, all-strength, omnipotent one. Seven eyes, it says. Remember the phrase in the Old Testament? The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. He sees everything. This is representative of his omniscience. He sees everything. He sees it all. He knows everything. He knows it all. And it says here, seven eyes. That fullness. He's all seeing. He sees it all. Now I want you to think about how amazing that contrast is. As we think about Jesus. You cannot describe him as anything more lowly than a weak and docile lamb. He's described as a weak lamb. And yet, at the same time, you can't attribute to this weak lamb any higher attributes than he's the omnipotent one, all power. There's nothing that can stay his hand. And the omniscient one, there's nothing that he, that, that gets past his knowledge. He's the lowly lamb, and yet he's the omnipotent, omniscient one. Which reminds us to see another contrast here. You notice it, I'm sure. He's called the lion, and he's called the lamb. And I'm sure you've heard that before. Jesus is the lion, and Jesus is the lamb. And both of these are gloriously, beautifully true. Don't misunderstand his lamb likeness he is a lion in fact revelation 6 will go on to say that the the people of this earth even the great rulers and the generals are going to hide themselves in the day of judgment you know what they're hiding from revelation 6 says the wrath of the lamb don't misunderstand his lamb likeness he's a lion and don't misunderstand his lion likeness. He is a lamb. He has shown us love and pity and compassion and patience by laying down his life for us when he could have mauled his enemies like a lion. And yet he laid down his life for us at the cross. What a lamb. Behold, Jesus is the conqueror. We see it there in verse 5. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Jesus is the conqueror. It says here he has conquered. Now how did he conquer? Well, verse 5 teaches that the conquering made him worthy to open the scroll. You see it in verse 5? Look at it. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll. So, so that he can open the scroll. So the conquering made him worthy to open the scroll. What does verse 9 say made him worthy to open the scroll? Verse 9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for... And he didn't say for you conquered. He said, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Therefore, he conquered by his death on that cross. Hebrews 2 says, through death he destroyed the one who has the power of death. He conquered through his death on that cross. So it doesn't say, behold, the lion, the root of David, who will one day conquer. He says, he's conquered. It's over. The victory is won. It's complete. 
It's finished, as Jesus said, hanging on the cross. Behold your Savior. Behold Jesus who conquers through death. Behold Christ and weep no more. Gaze upon Jesus and be restored. And what's the proper response of our hearts? As we gaze upon Christ, we we obey this command, we behold Him. What's the proper response to a glorious revelation of Jesus? And I think you know the answer. It's to worship. It's to worship. And that's the rest of this chapter. Verse 7 through 14 is the worship. It's exactly what we see. The worship of Jesus is at the center of everything. The worship of Jesus is at the center of this heavenly throne room. It's important that we understand worship. It's important that we do worship. So I want to, ha- I want to highlight several things from, from this passage, verse 7 through 14, about worship. In fact, I want to highlight quickly seven things about worship. There's seven eyes and seven of other things. We'll do seven points on worship. Number one, it's an expression. Worship is an expression of worth. Did you hear it in verse 9 and 12? He says, you are worthy for you were slain. Verse 12, you are worthy to receive glory and power. You're worthy. Worship is an expression of worth. R.C. Sproul said, the English word worship derives from the old English form, worth Skype, if you say it that way, which means worthiness or acknowledgement of worth. So worship is an expression. You are worthy. Number two, worship here is Christ-centered worship. It's not mere emotionalism. It's not just elevating the emotions through music or excitement with no real object. The object here in Revelation 5 is obviously that the the object of heavenly worship is Jesus the Christ, the Lamb, the Lion. Revelation 5, all eyes are on Jesus. All praise is towards Jesus. All bowing is at the feet of Jesus. All adoration, all singing is aimed at Jesus. He says, you are worthy in verse verse 9. You, you, you are worthy. He's the object of their worship. Real worship is not just worship of a God in general, but worship of Christ Jesus the Lord. There's an old hymn. Lamb of God, our souls adore Thee. While while upon Thy face we gaze, there the Father's love and glory shine in all their brightest rays. Three, the worship here is gospel-saturated. It's saturated with the gospel. Just notice the constant references to Christ, not just Christ, but Christ and His work on the cross, His work and His death and His resurrection. uh, Verse 6, verse 9, verse 12, the Lamb who was slain to ransom for Himself a people. It's gospel-saturated worship. Worshiping Jesus for His work on the cross is not temporary. This is in eternity. This is in heaven. We're still talking about it. We're still singing about it. Lifted up was He to die. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's an eternal plea. An eternal song. Number four, it's humble worship. Notice verse eight, what happens. And when he had taken the scroll, so the one found worthy grabs the scroll. When he had taken the scroll, listen, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. They're holding a harp for worship. They're they're bringing this incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Who is worthy to take this worship? Who's worthy that all the prayers of the saints will be laid at His feet? And what do they do? They fall down. They collapse before Him. 
This is humble worship. It's the way it finishes, verse 14. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. They fall down before him. They collapse before him. Never become so proper and so sophisticated that you can't collapse face down before Christ. Number five, this is singing worship. Verse nine says, they sang a new song. They sang. This is singing worship. Some things are so good, it just makes you think. And some things are so great that you can't help but just talk about it. But some things go beyond all of that, and it's so glorious. It gets into the realm of glorious that you've just got to sing about it. This is singing worship. Number six is loud worship. Verse 12, did you notice it? Saying with a loud voice, He is worthy of our quiet, reverent tears. And He's worthy of the loudest of praises. He's worthy of loud worship and praise. Little quiet, mousy Worship in a church is almost never a good sign. He's worthy of loud praise. And lastly, number seven, this worship is corporate. It's corporate worship. Look at it in verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. So you already got all, the, all those represented. And listen, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads of ten thousands times a myriad is ten thousand ten thousand times ten thousand and thousand times a thousand and they're just gathered around the throne and they're saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing this is corporate worship look at the multitudes gathered together Keep going, verse 13. And I heard every creature. It's in private. This is every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them. And every creature saying what? To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Private worship is wonderful. Family worship is is wonderful but even more glorious than private worship is corporate worship when the people of God come together and worship the king every time we do that we're getting this tiny glimpse into heaven as the people of God that will experience that heavenly worship before King Jesus one day that's a, that's a beautiful beautiful glorious thing Lamb of God Lamb of God Thou now art seated high upon thy Father's throne. All thy glorious work completed. All thy mighty victory won. Every knee in heaven is bending to the Lamb for sinners slain. Every voice and harp is swelling. Worthy is the Lamb to reign. Worthy is the Lamb to reign. Now why make this the New Year sermon? Why make this the New Year sermon? There were two things, two things that kind of came together that, that merged. Um, the first thing is that, as you all know, the New Year tends to make you reflect on the past. But it's the kind of reflection that makes you think about what's coming. You know, how to do better or how to... How to how to improve. You know, you're reflecting on the past uh, so that it affects the future. And this has been an emotional reflection for me this year. The, everything concerning the possibility of us moving to Iraq. I've been pretty controlled in my emotions. You can ask my wife that. Pretty controlled there. But something about this reflection of the new year has made me very emotional over this reflection this year. And just thinking about that, of is this my, 
last beginning of year to start with you. Is this, is this the last New Year's sermon? You know, I don't know. But it makes me think, what do I want to leave with you? What kind of thing do I want to share with you to start maybe the last year, maybe that I'm with you? So I'm thinking about that, and then at the same time, it's the second thing, and these things just merge together. At the same time, I've been so reminded recently of how central Jesus is to the Christian life. And y'all, I don't, I don't mean the idea of Jesus or the things of Jesus. I mean Jesus. I mean the person of Jesus. The one who died, the one who is alive right now, that hears our worship. Like now, he hears our worship. He's with us and he's and he's seated on a throne. Like how central the person of Jesus is to the Christian life. And that might sound basic to you, but man, that is so easily forgotten, and yet it's massively important for the Christian life. So what do I want to leave with you? Grace Community Church, I'm so thankful for the things that we have discovered together and we've experienced together. Things like a biblical understanding of ecclesiology, the way we understand the church and what it is and how it functions, a biblical understanding of the mission of God, of of, of missions, a biblical understanding of the family. So many things we've discovered together, and I praise God for that. I'm thankful for that. But here's the reality. We can have our ducks in a row on all those topics, and if we miss Christ, the love for Christ, affections for Jesus, the person of Jesus, We're not guaranteed to make it, to to remain healthy and faithful as a church to the very end. So I want to leave you with that question in light of Revelation 5. Is Jesus, Jesus, the person of Jesus, is he the hero of your life? Does he have your affections and your adoration We need hearts on fire in love and worship for Jesus. Is is, is that there? Is your greatest longing to know Him more and to worship Him? So let me leave you with this 2024 charge. Brothers and sisters, know the Lord Jesus and worship Him. Know the Lord Jesus of Revelation 5 and worship Him. Consider maybe at the start of this year, it doesn't have to be tomorrow, but sometime at the beginning of this year, consider taking a season, a time of fasting and prayer with the sole purpose of reigniting this fire in your soul for nearness to Christ, this desire for nearness to Christ. Get into the habit, this New Year's habit of private worship, of, of in the secret place, prayers offered up to the Lord Jesus to God to to this this songs going from your mouth to God in private and this open Bible and seeing God in his word like this make that make that so so much of a habit that it affects the corporate worship of this church when we come together and praise him I want to leave you with that charge Christ Jesus Christ Jesus he's the center of it all let's pray Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray, God, that you would help us. Lord, please protect us from being those that have lost the love that we had at first or those whose love grows cold. Keep us, God. Protect us from being those that honor you with our lips and have all the forms of religion but our hearts are far from you. God, I pray that you would strip from us distractions, God, and in the middle of learning so many new things in your word, God, I pray that you would keep Christ at the center of our hearts and the center of this church. Lord Jesus, that you would be the hero that you are, the glorious one. You are the lion of the tribe of Judah. You are the root of David. You are the lamb that was slain. You've redeemed us, us, Lord. And I pray, God, that our affections would soar for you, Lord. 
That our, that our pursuit of knowing you, Jesus, to, to, to know you more, would, would increase throughout this year. That you would settle in our hearts, God, this, these habits of knowing, knowing you, Lord Jesus, and, and worshiping you in private and corporately. God, we see, we see people in your word, God, that seem to start well, but they didn't end well. God, please, by your grace, make us, make us a people, make us a church that end well with hearts of, hearts of flame for your glory. Oh, we love you, Lord, and we need your help. Thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers and that you help us in Jesus' name. Amen.